your eyes close. See the field spread out before you. See the field full of possibilities, where we might learn new stories together, where we might see the creativity of humans brought to life with words, where people and stories meet, where we might understand each other, not as something to hate or to fear, but as someone whom we share this earth with. Welcome to the Infamous Fables Podcast. Just a quick note before we get started. None of these stories are meant to encompass the entirety of their rich cultures. If you want to learn more about African cultural works, I have included a list of references I found useful in the podcast description. Feel free to explore them and delve further into what makes these cultures unique. Keep your eyes open, and you never know what you might see. Episode 4. The Words That Connect Us. Part 1. The Stories Today, I'll be speaking with Brenda Bonine. She was a history teacher at Basis and lived in Africa for 20 years. This week's episode may have stories that are disturbing for some listeners, including depictions of death and brutality. If you want to skip these, skip to the 13-minute mark. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Okay, well, first of all, in your mind, discard the Disney most, not all, most of the Disney, uh, Walt Disney adaptations. Um, There's some brutality in those tales, and there's some revenge in those tales, and there's a lesson of don't think you're better than somebody else, or something will happen and will show you that you're not. That comes through very clearly in both original Grimm's tales, not all of them, but many. Um, There's one of those tales just to give you an idea, and I'll give you a, a Zimbabwean corresponding one, where there's a mother who had a child who just would not behave. She just never did what the mother told her. And eventually the child got some fever or something and died. Okay, yeah. Well, they buried her, but when they buried her, her arm kept sticking up straight out of the grave. The little kid's arm through the dirt. And the mother kept slapping it back down. And this happened several times. And finally, the the mother just really wallops the arm. And finally, this little girl puts her hand down and stays dead in her grave. The end. Now, (laughs) what? Where's the prince come in? Where's the magic? Whatever. Nope, no magic. The end. Now, there are some tales, not just in Zimbabwe, but a lot of world folk tales that kind of leave you going, what, what, what just happened here? Um, Where's the happy ending? Well, there aren't always happy endings. The story I can think of just off the top of my head is one where, yeah, I think it was Cheetah and and Hare. Bottom line is, Cheetah manages to eat Hare's children, and Hare is really ticked off about it, not surprisingly. And so somehow it ends up that the hair tricks, a lot of trickstering here. Hair figures out a way to 
make cheetah without knowing it thinking that he's eating the rest of Hera's baby uh, he fixes it so that cheetah eats his own babies the end <laughs> so I mean you, you kind of go whoa wait a minute what what uh, well there it is um, so that, I mean that's the quickest example of that I could think of so some of them quite are but you notice it's not necessarily about and then she jumped up and ran off and and diamonds fell from the skies. You know, you just don't get that. Um, I think because life isn't easy, especially under for some people at some times, and you reflect that in your culture or your culture reflects that. Okay, the, the stories you hear the most about, you know how hare and tortoise are kind of a West African theme that we carried over to the U.S., because of the enslaved labor situation. It's hair and baboon. And Shona, that's Tsuro is hair and Gudu is baboon. So hair and baboon are supposedly friends. Huh. They're more like frenemies, you know, and they're always together. And you, in the back of my mind, I keep thinking, dudes, you should not hang out together. It never works out. But that's what many, many of these tales, if you look at a, a, an annotated list, even online, you'll see 70 hair and baboon stories or hair and this the hair is always there and then you'll find one every once in a while of buffalo and the lion you know they're kind of random but the hair stories especially so one day hair and baboon are always tricking each other and so baboon invites hair to a feast because they're always pretending to be nice to each other so baboon says to hair come come we're gonna have a feast all my relatives will be there come there'll be plenty of food come so hair says mm, okay yeah yeah i'll be there so the day comes of the feast and hair goes kind of hippity hopping and off he goes and he's going he goes to baboon's crawl or area where the family lives and uh, baboon says come on up and he looks up and up in the high tree there's this big bag of food everything in the world that a baboon or a hare would like and it's up in the branches and all the other family of the baboon the other baboons are all there they're having a wonderful time and baboon says come on up come on up and hare looks at him and he says you know i can't climb trees i don't know how to do that and baboon looks down and says, oh well, too bad. And they just keep eating. Okay. So Hare is not angry at that time. He just says, oh, and he goes off and he doesn't get anything. Aha. But a little later, Hare invites Baboon to his family's feast. And he said, yeah, yeah, come on, come on. There'll be lots of food. And Baboon says, okay. So the day comes and Baboon comes. But when he gets to the, the clearing where Hare is with his family, oh my gosh, there's so much food. It's all laid out. But in that same, just around the area where the food is, in a circle, grass has been burnt, like a fairly, like maybe a yard or two of burnt grass. So it's all ash around the food. So Baboon comes and he comes around, he walks, you know, because, you know, they use all fours or two when they, either way. He comes over and he starts, he's going to start eating. And Harris says, wait, you can't eat with dirty hands. Go wash your hands, Baboon. You've got to do that. Baboon says, oh. Okay, okay. So he goes back off across, he goes to the stream and he washes his hands and his feet and everything's all better. And he comes back over. But of course, he has to go through the same circle of burnt ash around the food and he gets there again. And Hare says, no, 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 this won't do. You're all dirty again. If you can't come with clean hands when people invite you to a meal, 
no, it's off. You, you just can't eat here. So Baboon goes off very sad. And that's the end. So it's revenge, you know, and it's sort of like if you, you know, taking an opportunity for, they're always trying to get one up on each other. This one, again, hair often wins over Baboon. Not always, though. But Baboon was always taking things that hair felt belonged to him. And he was really fed up with it. So one day, hair gets a big, 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 big pot of water and he sets it in the fire. He's gone to the stream and he brings back all this water. He's got a small fire there and he puts you know, the pot and pours the water into the pot. And so it's beginning to warm up a little. And Baboon comes over and says, what, what are you doing here? And Baboon uh, asks, what are you doing here? And Hare says, oh, I'm going to have a bath. I'm heating the water. And Baboon says, oh, you're going to take a bath? Well, I'm going to take one first. I'm bigger. I'm more intelligent. I am taking the bath first. This is one of the things that had really irritated Hare. He just felt Baboon always thought he was better than Hare. So Hare says, well, okay, if you insist. So Baboon climbs into the pot. It's a big pot, seriously. And, you know, the nice little fire. And he says, no, 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 no. He yells at Hare, who's outside the pot. You, you've got to, it's got to heat up. This water is very cold. And so Hare says, okay, okay. I'm just going to put the lid on the pot, says Hare, so that, you know, it'll keep some of the heat in. Well, he does that. He also locks the lid on top of the pot. And he gets more firewood and he really starts making it pretty. He's really got the fire going. And Baboon inside the pot begins to say, it's getting a little warm in here. And so Hare says nothing. He doesn't say anything. He just adds more firewood. And then Baboon starts saying, it's too hot. Let me out. And Hare says nothing. And then Baboon is saying, you've got to let me out. And then he starts yelling. Hare doesn't say anything, he just builds up the fire. And in fact, Hare does this until finally the only sound from inside the pot is the bubbling of the water. So Hare crawls up and, and you know, he unlocks the pot and he opens it and there's what's left of Baboon. He's been burnt or boiled uh, to, the, to the bone. The end. <laughs> so you get the drift here that... <laughs> I hate to say I like that story. I don't, but did see both of these stories, you know, be told orally. And a little bit like me, people kind of get into telling the story and it, it does make you remember it. So with these happy tales, I'll conclude. There are some, now if you read some of the books, just like, doesn't need Walt Disney, but some of the more modern African, uh, I'm thinking again of mostly, I know the Zimbabwean ones, but not just those, uh, Botswana, South Africa, they're actually gentler. You know, you're not going to say to your five-year-old, here, honey, let me read you about the story about boiling somebody alive, okay? Sleep tight, you know. Uh, <laughs> so they've been prettified a little bit. And that is the one danger, well, I don't know if it's a danger, it's a reality, of having them all written down, which is why with Grimm's Tales, until I got an original copy, I had not realized until almost adulthood that, ooh, this is pretty rough. And I think many of these original tales, wherever in the world, the show in life was pretty tough. And so maybe there were some harsh realities. That's my take. A tale of Isaro the rabbit and Gudu the baboon. While Gudu was eating the porridge, however, a sudden thought darted into his mind, and he managed to knock over a great pot of water, which was hanging in front of the fire, and put it quite out. 
Now, said the cunning creature to himself, I shall be able in the dark to steal Isro's meat. But the rabbit had grown cunning as he, and standing in a corner hid the meat behind him so that the baboon could not find it. I will ask you to just remember that, uh, especially regarding Africa, that it's dozens of countries. It's not one country. And in fact, the United States could fit in more than three times and with room for Europe to come along in Africa. And it's vastly different. But some of these stories will have uh, humans are humans. And some of these stories will have some common links. Don't read too much into it. You know, don't say, oh, I heard a story from South Africa. So I know what a story is going to be like from Ethiopia. Mm, you know, not necessarily because there are different cultures involved. I think there are some general statements that can be made about tales in general, but always keeping in mind that's exactly what it is, a generalization. When you are having these things written or translated into another language, if they're in book form or even being told, uh, for example, the Babylon story, in an oral tradition, if it's sort of set up, you say two sentences of the story and your audience will say, Endarera, which means, well, actually means something different in a different context, but it's sort of used to say, and go on. You know, it doesn't literally mean, and go on, but you'll hear blah, 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 in the era from the audience. You know, it's sort of a chant almost, but oftentimes it's just the story being told. Stephen King has nothing on these folks. Part two, the research. Okay, uh, first question, what does storytelling mean to you? Well, for me personally, it's, uh, and we're assuming it's mostly we're talking oral storytelling. Um, I grew up with a family that liked uh, folk tales, especially Grimm's fairy tales, which were kind of our cultural background. And my dad, every night before bedtime, would read me a Grimm's fairy tale and or Grimm's folk tales, not really fairy tales. And that's carried on with me into uh, adulthood. And when I was starting to work on my master's, I wanted to go into folklore. And then I decided, well, I'll never get a job if I do that. So other things got in the way, but I've never stopped. I went to a university that had a strong folklore department, so I could always dabble on it in the side. So it means a lot to me. But in a more abstract sense, it's one way for a culture at a given time. It may not be current, but at some point reflects its values or shows what it's, it is important to it. Now, especially with older folk tales, it may be kind of a window into the past, because even if the tale is told today, unless it's updated, which they sometimes are, it's going to reflect the time when it kind of became prevalent, told a certain way. Grimm's fairy tales, to take that example, I know you're focusing on non-European ones, but these these trends or human actions 
kind of get expressed wherever you are. And in the original non-Disney version of Grimm's and some of the French tales and others as well, they're pretty rough. They're they're pretty violent. And when we talk about uh, Zimbabwean tales or African tales, you're going to, in their raw form, yeah, they are. I mean, life is tough. And sometimes they have violence and revenge and all sorts of things in them. So for me, knowing of these tales, it's a way of understanding from admittedly an outsider's point of view, even even if it's European tales, because I'm not in that original time period, but it is a window to seeing how people felt about things or valued, or for that matter, didn't value certain other things, the challenges they had, and so forth. Um, The other comment I'd have is that often today when people say, oh, folktales from China or folktales from wherever, and they get a book of folktales and they start with story one and they read all the way to story 20, that's not the way they were originally meant. It was like an oral tradition in every case that you might hear one or two tales and then that's it, you're done. You're not going to hear more. And the impact of those one or two tales would be quite a bit stronger and longer lasting than somebody who's now in a literate culture where literacy has really taken over from oral tradition, where they're reading just to get the job done and they're reading 20 stories. It's just not going to be the same. So the best way to deal with tales, folk tales, is to hear them in context of an oral tradition as much as possible. I don't know if you've done this yet, but if you go online, you will find a number of cases, especially with the African versions of people who are telling these tales, and you can see their animation and how they almost act out the tale. That's how oral tradition should probably be viewed uh, with everything that goes with it, the hand gestures, and that's the best way. So anyway, obviously, the whole concept of folktale, I think it's a really important way to not lose touch with heritage, whether it's your own heritage or somebody else's, and to observe how it's been carried over into current time. And is it still being used or spoken, or does it have to be a rescue job because these stories are about to disappear? So uh, the way we look at it today is going to determine how how intact some of these stories continue. Do you like uh, oral storytelling just in general more than written storytelling, even when it doesn't necessarily start out from the oral side? Well... I just think if it's going to be in the folk tradition, I don't care which culture it's from, you get a lot more of the energy behind the tale, even if it's told hundreds of years after the tale first started orally. I think I'm reading all the time, mostly nonfiction. But when it comes to anything that is in the folk tradition, you can just to get it absorbed, fine. But I do think oral tradition is a better way of hearing it, whether it's your own culture or someone else's, because you get so much of the the hidden or the undercover uh, aspects of that culture kind of often come through the way the story is told. What is your favorite like way that oral storytelling can be told, I guess, differently than written storytelling? Well, I don't know if I can answer that, because the only way you usually hear folktales orally today is because someone's making a special effort to communicate with the community. You know, like, oh, it's it's, so there's a folk, there's some sort of a folk occasion where people who are interested show up and storytellers who are known to be storytellers, or sometimes it's just ad lib, you know, tell the story, just have people from the audience come up, but it's a structured kind of affair 
which is fine. That's the way these stories are surviving in oral tradition now. But personally, I think the original, what I think anyway, is the original way, is when it was more of a casual thing like no TV, no nothing, you know, no, it's it's night. The only electricity you've got is the fire. And people are not ready to go to sleep, but somebody's going to start telling a tale. And that is the kind of a magical way. This is my, me speaking. I have no idea what the official view is, but of absorbing whatever the tale is and whatever uh, lesson, if there is a lesson, there is not always an obvious lesson. So I think in the home and in the context of casual community is probably the best, but I think it's very, very rare today that you're going to hear tales told like that. I hate, I'm not trying to keep referring back to Grimm's, but I know a lot about them and in East European folk tales. A lot of these were originally, who knows, probably everybody listened to them, and with more sophistication over time, they'd be tales that grandma would tell in the kitchen, and then from there, grandma stopped telling them, and now you go to the library and you read about them. So it's it seems to be very formalized today that you're going to even have a chance to hear them orally. Do you feel like stories, the fact that we're confining them almost to like one structured medium is almost taking away from some of their value? I think so. But if your alternative is that they disappear altogether, sure, I'll take what I can get, you know. Um, but I, I do feel absolutely the, the oral input. Like if I wrote everything I've been talking to you about just now, you you miss all my hand gestures, you know, you miss, I tend to be pretty animated. And a good storyteller, I mean, a person who does that sort of thing, they're communicating more than just the words on a page. Nevertheless, if it's in fact true that we're all so busy today, we're, I don't care where you live today, you're probably, whatever it means, modernized, westernized, I don't know, that's a loaded term, but you're probably so busy that you're not going to, on an average evening, sit around and say, Hey, family, let's tell the tale about when hyena got his stripes, you know, something like that. You're just not going to, it's not going to happen. It's an artificial environment. But if that's the only way to keep the tale, okay. Switching topic a little bit. So you lived in Africa for what, 20 years, you said? Just just under 20, yeah. Just under Uh 20. So why did you move there? And what was your experience like once you were there? I'd gone to the University of Texas, and then I did my graduate work at Indiana University. And I was a TA, teaching assistant in the geography department. And there was another guy there who was from what was then called Rhodesia. He was another TA. And we knew each other for a while. And long story short, cut to the chase, I ended up marrying him. So when he went back to Zimbabwe, he'd been out of Zimbabwe for uh, various, has to do with politics, refugees, the whole bit, just like we're going through now. Uh, for 10 years. But when he went back, I joined him about six months later. So I guess the main reason I knew about Rhodesia and it's becoming Zimbabwe a bit because I had an older brother who had been there for several times uh, in connection with the railroads, which seems to have nothing to do with this, but it actually does. And so I was familiar with the concept and where I knew where Rhodesia was. And I moved there right after the war. They had a war to make it become Zimbabwe from Rhodesia. I moved there right after that. And my husband had been working on his PhD at Johns Hopkins, and I'd been uh, there working for Johns Hopkins Press. And we didn't know how long we'd stay, but he needed to be back with his family for a while, and they needed him. So I figured, okay, we'll just see how this goes. Well, blink twice, and you've got two kids, and 
you've been there almost 20 years, and that's kind of how that works. So beware as you go through your life. Sometimes all sorts of things happen you don't expect. One reason we were there, and I was there as long as I was, is the family that I married into were so, and they still are, uh, so kind and for, to me and so accepting. And that was a big deal then because the war had been pretty much by the settlers who were white, uh, mostly of British origin. Britain, however, did not approve of this. But anyway, against the indigenous people who were like 96% of the population. And there was a lot of violence in the war. In fact, my father-in-law was murdered in that war. And it was, to me, amazing how open people were to someone who looked like me, who came from, actually, I'll be honest, coming from America was a bit of a plus because America hadn't been directly involved in everything that had been going on for 10 years. And so I have really good things to say. My mother-in-law, who was, a, uh, I guess we'd call her a peasant woman, She's still around. She's like 94 now. Just the most loving, caring person you could ever want. When I first got there, she told me, she said, oh, I hope I don't get all teary-eyed. She said, your mother is far away. I will be your mother here. And I just thought, dang, what else could I ask, you know? Yeah, uh, really. So they were really, really uh, good. Now, the more generalized experience, they were just really, really good. I mean, people in general, even the whites that stayed, most of them, they had, they wanted to be in Zimbabwe. They did not want to leave. Now, we as to what's happened in Zimbabwe in the last 40 years, not particularly pretty picture and a bit too predictable. But as far as the, in general, I was accepted by all of those groups. Uh, the Indian population was both Muslim and Hindu. They they tended to have their own cultural differences, but I was I just can't say enough good things. You know, I really cannot. So my experience was a very positive one. I'll admit I'm curious about everything, and that's just my nature. I want to know and maybe participate. But that helped. You know, I I wasn't. You know, if they were eating something that I thought was a little strange, I would tend to say, "Hey, let me have some too, please." And I may not want it again, but I at least you know had it then. So it. it it has to do a bit on the attitude that you go into something like that. But I could not have had that attitude, a pretty positive one, if they hadn't been so amazingly welcoming. Moving there, what would you say is the most meaningful thing that you learned from just living in a different country? Well, I had traveled a pretty good bit before then, so this wasn't new a new thought to me, but it was certainly made stronger that people are people are people. You know, yes, there are differences. And no, I would not understand everything that happened there. There were some cultural things that I, coming from America, thought were ooh, not so great. On the other hand, there were some cultural things that I thought, darn, I wish we did that in the US, you know. But at the bottom line, with that understanding that, yeah, there are some differences, but we're all, this sounds so cliche, but we're all kind of cousins underneath the surface. Again, that's kind of my philosophy. And I had that before I went there, but it got stronger by being there. Yeah, we're different. I've got actual blood cousins that I'm way different from. Oh, the other thing, I guess, with that point is that cultures adapt to what their environment needs or that requires. So you will get differences. But put in the same situation, I think whatever we think is a bit weird, we might have made the same kind of cultural decisions. So 
I think I became, I'm not all that open-minded really, but at least on the surface, I became more open-minded. How did you encounter uh, folklore or other stories while you're in Africa? Well, okay, this is, you know, everything, whether it wants to be or not these days is political. Uh, when Zimbabwe was created from Rhodesia, there was a sudden big emphasis on indigenous or local stories, uh, literature, etc. Now, it had always been there, but the government, understandably, now it was a, a majority, which happened to be Black, government. They wanted to highlight some of the talent that had been suppressed. And I won't go into how suppressive the previous government could be. They had their reasoning, too. I get it. But now that that was not the case, a lot of writers were encouraged. A lot of stories were now written into books at first. And they'd existed before. But usually, if you wanted to hear the two main groups are the Shona and the Indabella. Shona are about more than two-thirds of the population, and the Indabella are not quite another third, and then there are some smaller groups. They'd always had some publications since the British had come. They had put out some folk tales and so forth, but usually very cheap productions, uh, poor paper, etc. just something to say, look, see, we're recognizing culture. And that kind of got the ball rolling. But after independence, they began, which was in 1980, April 17th, I think, 1980, they began to uh, try to upgrade everything. So you started to see uh, children's books, because these tales were pretty much already delegated to children, not just the general uh, adult population. And they began to be in the bookstores. And so that was one of the ways that many people encountered a broader range. But if you talk to anybody, including some of the whites who had known uh, through farms or towns, they'd known the culture of the various African peoples as well, you would hear stories that they had heard. So you heard it oral tradition still, but you were beginning to see more and more also uh, kind of memorialized or publicized in books. So you got it both ways. Um, in terms of what I was saying about the informal meeting, where you'd hear the story in a more family setting, um, I did find people wanted to tell me stories that maybe they wouldn't have normally sat around and talked about. I think partly because I was interested. And part plus, you kind of like to show your culture off. You know, if you got some foreigner here or somebody who it starts off as a foreigner. So I'd hear a few through um, some of my in-law stories and a few friends. But for me personally, and also by the time I had kids, I made sure that I was buying a broad range of books for them. Plus, I had some from the U.S., so it was kind of both. As far as the oral tradition, already, it, for me, it was a minimal area. They were wonderful, but I was still, you know, I, in myself, I thought I was uh, a bit of an outsider. So my perception is going to be perhaps a little differently. Anyway, so I got a little bit of the oral, but a, a lot more of the, now we have these new books sort of thing of stories. Do you find yourself being like drawn to those sorts of stories that just have like a short, abrupt ending now? Or do you still like the like fanciful stories? I wanted, when I first learned of these stories, not just grim, but other stories too, they're not always grim, but they're more realistic than we care to think about. I guess I would say that I find abrupt endings, you know, kind of like why people read Stephen King. I mean, I mean, you think this is upsetting. I don't really want to read this, but you do. Well, it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same with this. 
I have to, I find them intriguing. You know, it's kind of like, whoa. And then you try to think about the people who first dreamed up or evolved those tales and what was their life like that they had to, that this to them was a way of sending a lesson. The consequences can be serious. So it's not like Aesop's fable where there's always a moral, but there's usually an implied moral. I guess I find that intriguing. Well, thank you for talking with me today. If you liked this episode of Infamous Fables, make sure to share it with your friends. Infamous Fables is produced and written by me, Cammie. You can find the music for today's episode on SoundCloud in the Infamous Fables playlist. If you're interested in learning more about the stories you heard today, check out the links in the description where I've put my favorite retelling. If you have any suggestions of your own, contact me at camielee03.wixsite.com slash infamousfables. That's C-A-M-I-L-E-E 03.wixsite.com slash infamousfables. Keep your eyes open and you never know what you might see. Thanks! <laughs>